This is SCOTUS Talk, a nonpartisan podcast about the Supreme Court for lawyers and non-lawyers alike, brought to you by SCOTUS Blog. Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. These days, the Supreme Court has many friends, friends of the court briefs, also known as amicus briefs. Our guests today have been studying and writing about amicus briefs for a decade, and they recently published a new article looking back at their findings since 2010. Anthony Franz and Reeves Anderson are partners in the appellate and Supreme Court practice at Arnold and Porter. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Amy. All right, so I think before we start, we need to get a really weighty question out of the way. Um, how do you pronounce amicus? Was that the, the proper way, which is amicus? I'm an amicus person. I, I, I actually read an article once about the various definitions and uh, um, and I, I landed on the the one that, that I always use which was amicus I wait until the judge pronounces it first and then I mimic that net you can never go wrong that way so does anyone besides justice Breyer say a mic is justice Breyer is the one who says amicus is that right that's right and that is apparently the correct but sort of the anglophile anglophile version when in doubt just say friend of the court Exactly. That's what I use, actually, usually in my writing. So what, how did you get started with these studies of amicus briefs? You know, I don't have a strong recollection of whatever madness kind of consumed us to, to start this 10 years ago. Um, I, I recall that, you know, at the time, Arlen Porter was first, uh, we had just kind of taken the group, loose group of appellate lawyers and, and, and made a, a formal department for Supreme Court and appellate work. Um, and it, at, at around the same time, we started noticing um, an increase in, of clients asking for amicus briefs. Um, and uh, we wanted to kind of understand what the justices found most useful in the briefs. So we started looking into it. And one thing led to another. And then we wrote the first article. and. Uh, every year since, we, the National Law Journal has asked us to do it again. Our deadline is usually either when we're on vacation or have a really, really heavy caseload. And so you, you, your first article, and this is something you referred to just now, your first article in 2011 referred to an explosion of amicus briefs. I, I was fascinated in one of your articles, one of the early articles, uh, you know, Brown versus Board of Education in the 1950s, there were six Amicus briefs, or something exactly like right. that. Yes, and then even Roe versus Wade, which was more recent, but still a very long time ago, uh, a relatively small number. Um, what What do you think has caused this? Is it a self perpetuating phenomenon? There's been a rise in the Supreme Court, the number of Supreme Court specialists looking for something to do, so there's more of them, and then the justices cite them, and so people write more. Or is there something else going on? When we look back to our use of the word explosion in 2011, it actually seems naive in retrospect yes. because the <laughs> growth it further exploded. Been, yeah, over the last 10 years, we've only seen those numbers tick further and further up. But, but it's true, as you said, that participation today is on a completely different level than it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, where Brown had six amicus briefs. The leading case last term, Bostock, the Title VII case that bans sex discrimination, that had 94 unique amicus briefs. And that's not unusual. In the last 10 years, we've seen multiple terms 
where a single case can generate 100, 130 amicus briefs. And so there are several potential factors here. One is frankly the ease of access to information about what issues are before the court. And you know, we have SCOTUS blog to thank for that. We can now log on to SCOTUS blog, anyone can from anywhere in the world and see what issues are in front of the Supreme Court that day. And I think that that ease of access to information, which is a, a new revelation or new revolution in the court's practice, I think contributes to Amiki wanting to weigh in on the issues of the day. And, you know, another one is the development, as you said, of the specialized Supreme Court bar. Right? You have practitioners that understand the value of amicus briefs and how they can contribute to uh, the, the issues in the case. And that's not just in private practice. We're seeing advocacy groups beyond the ACLU and the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, who are the traditional amici, we're seeing dozens of groups like this pop up and participate in multiple cases throughout the year. That's part of the specialized bar. And the third factor that I think we've identified is there are simply fewer merits cases each year. Whereas a couple dozen, you know, 20 years ago, there may have been 100 cases, there are only 60 merits cases. And fewer cases mean more concentrated attention. Uh, and the amici are taking these limited opportunities to have their merits issues aired and, and focusing their attention there. Yeah, it's a great point. I hadn't thought about the last one in particular. They used to come back after lunch every day and hear two more oral arguments. Now you only do that maybe once in April. Right. And, you know, it's so much easier now, it's so much easier to file an amicus brief in the Supreme Court than in the courts of appeals. And the justices haven't, you know, there's been this explosion, you know, you, you were chronicling it in 2011. And, you know, since then, the numbers have increased further. The justices haven't really done anything to suggest that they want to limit the number of amicus briefs, which, you know, you say, and I, I think sounds, they, they, they must find them useful, or at least not unuseful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a reasonable assumption, uh, because they, you know, they could impose whatever limits they want on uh, amicus participation. And they haven't really uh, put forth any meaningful limits. Um, a few years ago, when they uh, revised the Supreme Court rules, they actually made it easier in some ways to file amicus briefs by um, changing some of the, well, modifying some of the consent rules, making it clear that parties can file a, a blanket consent to all amicus briefs being submitted rather than having to go one by one and some other changes that um, for practitioners made life easier to file amicus briefs. Um, uh, more recently though, they, they have uh, made some minor limits by shortening the, uh, the, the page limit or word limit for briefs. Um, so that, that does reflect some um, amicus fatigue, I, I think. Um, and on the flip side, you know, imposing limits at the end of the day might create, um, you know, more work for the justices because, uh, you know, Justice Alito, when he was on the Third Circuit, he wrote an opinion um, basically adopting a free-flowing amicus uh, um, participation uh, approach be, in part because the amount of work it would require to just analyze each brief and determine if it was worth, you know, uh, having being filed would probably be more work than what they have to do now. 
That's true. The way, you know, justices sort of generally have a, some justices generally have a policy of, we'll give you your extension to file a cert petition, you know, just, just take it. We're not going to question your reasonings as long as it's in on time. It's a great point. You talk in some of your articles about how hard it is to gauge exactly, you know, how influential briefs are. And, you know, can you talk a little bit, you go by citations in Supreme Court opinions. The fact that a justice would choose to cite a particular amicus brief or mention it during oral argument and ask the parties to respond does give us some indication that the arguments resonated with the justice or may influence the way that they think about the case. And so we've been looking at citation rates as a potential proxy that it, the amicus argument was at least useful enough um, uh, to warrant the, the court's time and attention. Yeah, that's always an exciting moment you know, for lawyers at oral argument when they mention the brief by name, the Carter Phillips brief, the Lisa Blatt brief, then you, you know, everybody goes back and emails the lawyer, I'm sure, to tell them that the brief was mentioned. Yes. Now, were you able to take that into account at all in your sort of analysis? So we haven't looked specifically at discussions during oral argument. We certainly do flag it each year, um, but you know, it's it's sometimes a way to see whether an argument is just being pressure tested. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the, the particularly when the argument style was more free flowing, uh, it was uh, not quite the same baseline as using citation rates and opinions, which of course you know, are the final product that the court delivers. And so we have focused up to this point on the, the citations in signed opinions, um, but certainly there are other ways that amici can influence the, the lifespan of a, a case and, and the way the issues are considered at the court. So you've also tracked sort of which justices are most likely to cite amicus briefs in a particular term. And you know, is there any sort of method to the madness in terms of, you know, particular justices or ideology or sort of, you know, one thing, sort of the point at, in a justice's tenure at which they're citing amicus briefs? You know, this is something that we have tracked year to year, but really only until we had a decade's worth of data can you really start to identify patterns among the justices when it comes to citation rates? So looking back at the past decade, Justice Ginberg topped the list. She cited amicus briefs in 46% of her signed opinions. Justice Kagan was right on her heels with 45%. At the other end of the spectrum, we have Justice Thomas, who uh, has been the least frequent amicus cider I think 18% of his 265 opinions have featured at least one citation to Amiki. But that said, we also don't think it's inherently ideological, at least from what we can tell from the data. You know, a good example are the five four cases, the, the contentious cases. Not only do they tend to get the highest number of amicus briefs filed, they also have a really high citation rates. So the author of those opinions, the so-called swing justices, Justices Justice Kennedy and Chief Justice Roberts over the last decade, they both cited amicus briefs in more than 40% of their opinions. So we're careful to 
acknowledge that it's, it's not always clear whether it's the justices individual proclivities or the nature of the cases that they happen to be writing that influence the, the citation or the utility of citing an amicus brief in a particular opinion. And so what kinds of briefs are the justices most likely to cite? You know, our decade looking at this um, confirmed the you know a number of things. One of which is the types of briefs they're highly unlikely to cite, which are uh, uh, which are generally referred to as Me Too briefs, which are are briefs that basically um, cover what the parties are covering. You know, address the same type of legal arguments and don't really add anything new to the mix. The types of briefs that that tend to get cited. Um, are those that add some, some unique perspective or broader context on the uh, implications of, of the issues in the decision. Um, Professor Allison Larson kind of coined a term called legislative facts, um, which you know, she kind of loosely defines as um, facts about the world that um, are not in the record, but will give some context to the questions presented. And we, those, if I had to pick one category where we see year after year, those are the type of briefs that are being cited, uh, you know, more than, more than any. And so like last term, for example, uh, in the DACA case, the justices cited a brief from some businesses um, noting the potential business implications of the decision. Um, in another case, they decided academics who describe how effective consu uh, consumer surveys are uh, designed. Um, in you know other cases, they heard from um, you know different uh, religious groups about how uh, certain religious practices um, work, and uh, that, that's just to name a few. And you can go year after year. Our articles we we started uh, just kind of cataloging the, the types of facts, and there's there's just um, you name it. They're they're they cover the gamut, um, and it, that is probably other than being. Uh, uh, a brief from the Office of Solicitor General, which gets cited uh, regularly. That's the most type, uh, the briefs that get cited most often. Are there particular areas of the law? I feel like sort of my intuition is that the justices are like, you know, constitutional law, we got that. But, you know, bankruptcy, it might be really helpful to have somebody who actually knows what they're talking about who come in and, to come in and do an amicus brief and uh, you know, perhaps the sort of legislative facts or to explain how a sort of complicated area of the law works. One that jumps out are patent cases. So patent cases get a disproportionately higher level of amicus participation, maybe for exactly the reason you're suggesting, Amy. It's just an area of law that the court may be less, the individual justices may be less intimately familiar with. It could also be that those cases are fewer and, and farther between and have pretty major implications for an entire field uh, whenever patent cases do make their way to the Supreme Court. So several of the past terms, um, the highest, the case with the highest number of amicus brief have actually been patent cases, uh, not the um, constitutional or, or most controversial cases uh, that, that come before the court. But more broadly speaking, you know, it's, it's not so much the subject matter that we see getting citations, but the, the amici that are helpful in compiling local laws or practices. You know, think of the 50 state surveys. They tell the court what's happening on the ground, or they highlight the practical effects of the court's decision. It may be that the 
the law in front of the court is the same law in 48 other states, or maybe it's a one-off. And, and those are important data points for the courts to have, for the, for the justices to have when they think about how far to go. And often we find that parties don't have the time or space to include that level of detail in their submissions. And in that way, amici play an important gap-filling role in telling the court how far the decision might actually stretch. Interesting. So with all these amicus briefs, is it hard for a particular brief, even when it's really good to stand out, and when a brief does stand out, whose briefs are standing out? So just in terms of the numbers, mathematically, yes, <laughs> it's, it's a lot harder to stand out from the crowd. You know, even with the reduced word count for amicus briefs, we did a little back of the envelope math this past term, and amicus briefs were 7.3 million words last term. Wow. That, that's four <laughs> times as many pages as the parties filed on the merits. Uh, it's, it's war and peace a dozen times over. That's a lot of work for the court to wade through. But, you know, the court staff is nothing if not diligent, and they're continuing to go through those mountains of briefs and, and plucking out the ones that are helpful and finding ones that, you know, they're, they're still citing in their final opinions. You know, and as far as, you know, whose briefs get noticed, I, I, you know, there's an easy answer to that. The Solicitor General's briefs get cited more than any other types of briefs, and that's understandable given the high caliber of lawyers and the institutional relationship the uh, Solicitor General's office has with the court. Um, studies show, and, and I think it's it's borne out in our in our review that uh, prominent advocates or prominent professors um, or prominent uh, uh, Supreme Court practices uh, briefs will get cited more. Um, and you know, it could be that that when the clerks are likely uh, uh, separating the wheat from the chaff, they they're looking for indications of briefs they might want to pay a little closer attention to. And that might give them a name they recognize or, or uh, institution that's known for good briefs might give them uh, a little incentive to look a little closer at a brief. But at the end of the day, I, you know, it still matters what's, what's inside the brief. And um, I think our review has shown that, uh, that who drafts the briefs uh, does you know, show up as, as a factor in whether they're cited, um, but still, it really depends on the content. So you mentioned law professors. Richard Fallon at Harvard has been critical of what he sees as the phenomenon of law professors being too quick to sign on to amicus briefs. Um, Amanda Frost, who's written uh, quite a bit for SCOTUS blog, did an essay in the green bag sort of countering that idea. Um, do you have thoughts on that? Or, or I guess you what do you have thoughts on what the justices might think of that? I mean, obviously they still regard, you think they still regard at least some law professor amicus briefs as, as important. The numbers I think tend to support Professor Frost's theory here. Uh, scholar briefs tend to be cited at a higher rate than other private party amicus briefs. That suggests they carry some special weight. I mean, it, it makes sense when you sort of dig into it. Professors spend their careers focusing on 
the intricacies of the law, thinking about how it may affect other areas, the, the follow-on effects. That's a lot of the same inquiry that the justices need to take on a particular question presented. And I think the court can benefit from the deep thinking that professors bring. Just earlier yeah. this month in the Nestle oral argument, both Justices Kagan and Kavanaugh invoked amicus briefs in questioning the advocates uh, by professors at Yale Law School, you know, suggesting that they, okay. they took to heart the you know, particular perspective that those scholars were bringing to the case and wanted to hear the party's reactions to that. So you know, at least in practice, they do seem to be gravitating towards those briefs, potentially because they also know those professors and, and they respect the reputation that they bring to the field. Yeah, last term is an example. Um, every single justice cited a brief, uh, a scholar brief or a brief from a, a professor. Um, and, you know, I think Professor Fallon raised some valid points about the need to ensure that, that, that somebody's just not signing their name to a brief. Uh, my experience working with professors on uh, amicus briefs has been that they treat them pretty seriously. And um, um, I, I think they should, they, I don't think they often get the, the uh, credit they would get for other scholarly writing in their institutions. And I think that's something the academy uh, should, should, you know, reconsider. So you've focused mostly on sort of amicus briefs being cited by the justices, but do you have any amicus briefs that you can think of that jump out at you as being sort of individual ex examples that are particularly powerful? You know, I, I, I think that for me, the types of briefs that jump out at me are um, briefs that provide a viewpoint you wouldn't expect. You know, um, former prosecutors advocating for a criminal defendant um, in a procedural right. Um, you mentioned the, the Carter Phillips brief. That was, you know, a brief filed by military officers arguing in favor of schools being able to consider race and admission policies. Um, I, I, I like those types of briefs. I think they can be really effective. Um, I also think briefs, uh, Amika can sometimes push the envelope in ways that parties sometimes can't or that, that would be contrary to their client's interests. And amicus briefs sometimes, you know, parties may not be, um, is, uh, have the interest in arguing that the court should overrule one of its precedents, for example. And we've seen amica do that. And, um, and the court actually, you know, overrule precedent. Um, and, for, you know, for me, the other kind of briefs that when having read hundreds of these over the last 10 years, kind of analyzing how they're used, um, there are briefs I just call story briefs where, um, that highlight kind of the human or social ramifications of jurisprudence on, you know, individuals, you know, briefs where, uh, in a domestic violence, uh, a case that implicates domestic violence, you know, former, um, victims of domestic violence submit a brief providing their perspective. And we've seen an increase of that type of brief and I, I found them to be pretty effective. What advice would you have for somebody who is doing a merit stage amicus brief for the first time and wants to wants to submit something that that is going to really count? You know, as you mentioned before, Amy, one of the keys here is is find some way to stand out from the crowd. You know, so first rule of thumb, you know, don't file a me too brief. When we think of the cases that really stand out, Cato Institute comes immediately to mind. So the Cato has developed this reputation of drafting 
humorous and, and sometimes irreverent briefs that still make really powerful substantive arguments. Um, there was one a few years ago that was joined by P.J. O'Rourke, the, the satirist. It was a case involving, um, I think, an Ohio law that, that banned false speech, false political speech. And the, the amicus brief did a really powerful job of saying, using this phrase truthiness, uh, that was all the rage, and said, if we can't have potentially false political speech, we may run out of political speech altogether. Um, and as a satirist, you know, PJ O'Rourke was able to say that, you know, there's the serious business of making politics funny. And, and the court needs, you know, needs to hear those kinds of perspectives. So finding a unique angle like that, I think is really helpful. You know, another example of a brief that can stand out from the crowd in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case from a few years ago, there were, there was an amicus brief submitted of pictures that showed intricate cakes uh, that, and it was an illustration of the artistry involved in the cake making process. And so, you know, those are off you know, different, different approaches to, to convey important messages uh, to the court. So finding ways to stand out uh, and, and be a unique contribution, I think that's, that's one of the first tasks. Yeah, and to uh, build on what Reeves was saying, I mean, I, I, to me it's always the first step is, is understand what the client's interest in the case is and how the decisions, you know, will affect, could affect them. And then really dig deep into, tr try to find a, a way to illustrate that in a way that, that either blows out something the parties are discussing um, in, a, in, a, in more depth, or find a, a way to contextualize the question in a way that really brings home the concern the client has, because that's, you know, frankly, why they're filing the brief. And um, beyond that, I think, uh, keep it short, you know, omit needless words, strunk and white. Always a good, always a good practice. Well, Anthony Franz, Reeves Anderson, thank you for joining us. We look forward to the next edition, the, the uh, 2021. Uh, version, which hopefully will not be due uh, during your vacation or when you've got a brief due. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Amy. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and to our production team, Katie Barlow, Katie Bart, Cal Goldie, and James Ramoser. <laughs>